This is episode number four with Harry Groner. Coming up. And as soon as it started, I said, you son of a bitch, Bob Hobbs, because he was absolutely right. And the casting director said, well, you finally learned how to audition for film. <laughs> and go in there and try to give them what I call just a little piece of theater. And by that, I mean, you make them focus on you for the, that, that time that you're in there. You're only there for a few minutes. You're only there for three minutes. We're all doing a play, and we have to tell that story. So we're all really in the same boat. It doesn't matter what your history is. We all, we're all part of now this history. We're all part of the history of this particular production, and we're all equal as far as I'm concerned. Holy Christ. <laughs> this is great. This stuff is just great. Hey there. Thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not, click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to The Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in-depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for 30, 40, 50 plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agan. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California, done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur, work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd, love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. Just so you know, there's going to be about 10 episodes for the first season of this podcast. In the acting business and in life, there is so much uncertainty and vulnerability and rejection. Wouldn't it be nice as an actor if you could find a little bit of peace in the process? Back in 2010, I found something that really helped me out with a lot of the anxiety and worry, and that is meditation. I really wish I had known about this when I was pursuing a career in acting in Los Angeles. Now, fast forward to today, I haven't missed a day of meditating in seven years. I find it that useful. And that's also why I created a free online course delivered by email. So you can go to freemeditationcourse.com and sign up right now. It has tips and ideas and advice and scientific evidence because it has been proven it's good for you. You can start with just 30 seconds. I guarantee you will experience a difference. Go to freemeditationcourse.com and start your journey right now. Today on the show is Harry Groner, a three-time Tony nominee for musical theater with starring roles in Oklahoma, Cats, and Crazy for You. He's also pretty well known for playing Mayor Wilkins in the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and he was a series regular on the 90s sitcom Dear John with Judd Hirsch. 
Harry apprenticed at the San Francisco City Ballet, trained at PCPA, which is the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts in California, and then he graduated from the University of Washington in Seattle. He's worked at many major regional theaters across the country, and he's also a founding member of the Antius Theater Company in Los Angeles. He's been recognized with a Theater World Award in New York for his performance in Oklahoma, the Joseph Jefferson Jeff Award in Chicago for The Madness of George III, an L.A. Ovation Award for Equivocation, and an L.A. Drama Critics Circle Award for King Lear. I've worked with Harry in Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage and Her Children, and I've seen him on stage as King Arthur in Spamalot on Broadway. I actually knew I had to see him there. I mean, this was Harry in his element. I was in L.A., he was in New York, but I made it happen. I took a trip across the country primarily because I knew I had to see this guy doing what he was born to do. I also saw him as the lead in The Madness of George III in Chicago and many other productions in Los Angeles. He's always fantastic. He has over 80 credits on IMDb, and his film work includes About Schmidt with Jack Nicholson and Road to Perdition with Tom Hanks. Recent television work includes Breaking Bad, How I Met Your Mother, and Las Vegas. And he's also been on the Star Trek series a number of times. Harry is basically a lot of fun. He's got a great sense of joy and humor. He's such a fun person. I mean, you'll hear he cracks himself up a lot. It's just a fantastic and fun conversation. We cover his early years in ballet, something he didn't even want to do at first, doing rotating repertory theater and what that prepares you for, working on the film Brubaker, which was his first with Robert Redford, his goals as an actor working on quote-unquote evil characters, and why it's so important to learn your lines. We also dive into how he approaches both Noel Coward and Shakespeare, which is such a great mini-class. He goes super in-depth on both a specific song and a monologue. He takes you exactly through how he's working on those and what he's thinking about. Be sure to stick around for that. So here we go with episode number four. Please enjoy my chat with Harry Groner. I don't understand the Black Friday thing. I don't understand the people rushing to the store. I know they want to get deals and all that, but I just, ah, God, that's just a nightmare to me. Have you, um, are, are you a member of REI or have you ever, are you familiar with uh, that store? I imagine you are to some degree. No, I don't think I am, but I don't know what that is. So it's a, it's an outdoorsy store. They have a lot of like camping gear and, and just uh-huh. all that kind of stuff. But what they've done over the last few years is they give all of their employees the day off on Black Friday. And, wow. and they've kind of created this or, or encouraging this movement for what they call opt outside instead of like opting out of a, uh, an email. You're mm-hmm. you're opting out of going into a store and you're actually getting into nature uh, and, and doing that. So they've been doing that the last few years for Black Friday. It seems to be going pretty well. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And, and of course, like the, the, the silliness is that you think about that and you're like, it's not actually that crazy of an idea. But now it sounds like such a radical concept. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, that sounds like a really good, cool store. I'm not a uh, – uh, I, I love actually go outdoors, and I love all that, but I, I don't 
do any of that now. I don't really go camping or hiking or I just, I can't actually, I can't physically can't, yeah. you know, we have a guy who worked for us, but he's, uh, you know, we're all about the same age and he mountain climbs and hang glides and goes all over the world and does things. Oh my God. And he's just in great, great, great shape. And I just admire him so much for that. Was it all the dancing and all the physicalness you've been doing on stage for years? Was that part of it? Yeah, it's, it's that it's part of that, that has to, that has affected my knees and ankles, but in my lower back, this is interesting. This is something that I, actually an injury that I uh, that I got in my mid twenties. I was twenty five or something. I was working at the American Stage Festival and doing a, a fado farce, doing a flea and rear, and uh, which is very physical and uh, it, 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 it did a lot of bits in it and all that. Well, one bit just did not go right because of a door. Doors are very important. <laughs> and and doors and hardware are very important in the Fado farce. They have to work. <laughs> sure. So when it didn't go quite right, and so we, the two, there's another gentleman who's also involved in the bit, and uh, we overcompensated, and I over-torqued my spine. Mm. And it was the first time, and I felt something weird, and I felt something that was not quite right. I finished the production. I got up the next morning and I could not bend forward. I didn't wow. know what the hell happened. I could not bend. It was just incredibly painful. It took me right away to a chiropractor. The first chiropractor that I went to, he took an x-ray and he showed me that the lower part of my back, two vertebrae were out, out of, out of alignment. You could see it. You could actually see it out of alignment. Put me on the table, put it back in, took another x-ray and showed me that it was back in again. And, it, and, and then it was fine. But from that moment on, that area has been slightly compromised. So I'm able to, to continue with my life and go on with my career, and I do all these musicals, and I do all this physical stuff, and everything It goes just fine with an occasional. During Crazy For You, I had to you know, make sure that I had massages, and I went to the chiropractor regularly and stuff like that. But then about four or five years ago, I started to feel something, not pain, but just felt uh, a kind of weakness or an awareness of that area. So I went to an orthopedic doctor and he took uh, an MRI and he looked at it and, and said, well, here's the story. You're, that, one, that one area, uh, that one disc is totally shot. Everything else above it is perfect. It's just that one disc. And I said, is this because of the injury in 77? He said, absolutely. Mm. So I said, then what do we do? He says, well, you, you know, you could operate. We can go in there and you take it out and put something else in. Or because I'm, I'm not in any pain. There's no pain, and I don't have any sciatic pain down my legs or any of that. I just have to be very, very careful about my movement. I can't torque. I can't lift or compress that area. Mm. And so I just have to be very cautious and keep those muscles strong around that area, and hopefully I will never have to have this operation. Because he said, don't have the operation unless you're in extreme pain or your movement is so uh, uh, hampered and, and constricted and you can't do anything. That's when you have the other operation, but do not have it now. Just keep it strong. So that's what I did, and that's what I've been doing. But it's just that one injury in my mid-20s, now coming home to roost. Isn't that something? So be careful, Nathan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will not, uh, I will not, I'll try not to over-torque myself and if I get involved in a Fado play. Um, yeah, don't do it. Don't <laughs> stay away from Fado. <laughs> I mean, you were you were pretty physical even as a kid because you were doing ballet um, in San Francisco, oh, yeah. right? Now, what, what what did you love about ballet? What drew you to that? Oh gosh, you know, I I started as uh, as a dancer. I wanted to be a dancer. Both my mother and father were performers, and I wanted to be a dancer very very badly. And of course, when I saw it, you know, West Side Story was the one that put me over the edge. I saw that and I said, I want to do that. 
So I said, I want to go into jazz classes. And my mother and father, who were not ballet dancers, but in order, but their initial training, they both had to take ballet because they were both dancers and they had to take ballet for their, for, for your basics, for get your basic training. And so they said, well, okay, fine. But if you want to be good at the jazz, you have to have ballet. And I said, I don't, I don't want to have ballet. I said, well, you have to have it. And I said, well, it's, I don't want to, it's just, I'm going to be the only guy and it's just going to be crazy and it's going to be embarrassing. And because you're in your, you know, you're at that age, I'm, you know, 13, 14 years old, whatever. Sure. You're so sensitive. And I said, don't want to, you have to. I said, okay, fine. So I started taking a ballet class. And of course, I was seemed like the only guy in that class. I didn't know how to, I had tights and a t-shirt and my, I didn't know how to really wear the tights. So the crotch was down, you know, below my, uh, where my hips are. <laughs> it just looked really stupid and dorky. But I took the ballet class and at one point, conservatory ballet, we had a company called Ballet Celeste. And Mary Lenova was the woman who ran it. She was with uh, the Ballet Russe for a while uh, as a young woman. And they were going to have do their tour of uh, Nutcracker. And so they asked me if I wanted to play the prince. Now, I'm just starting ballet, but, and the prince doesn't have to dance. All the prince has to do is really just walk around and be, be the Nutcracker and then be transformed into a prince and then tell a story a little bit at the end, which is really all mime and maybe do some, you know, grand jetés around uh, in a circle and then sit in a throne and watch everybody else dance. That's all you have to do. But I was, I was at a good height. I, 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 you know, I looked kind of clean cut and nice. I looked princely. So, they, so I said, sure. Well, then you start rehearsing the ballet and you get into all that world. And it was just so exciting and so wonderful. And then you tour. We did a sort of a bus and truck from here, from, no, from San Francisco, all the way up the West Coast into Canada, into Vancouver, and then into um, Victoria. And so you're on a bus and truck, and you're in a hotel, and you, you do all this, and it was so very exciting and wonderful, because and, and, we, we would get up very early in the morning, and you'd get on the bus, and you'd travel hours until you get to a national park, uh, and you'd stop there, and then they would cook you breakfast. And you'd have pancakes and eggs and things, and, and you'd play out in the woods, and oh my God, it was heaven. So then I just fell in love with it. And then we did not just Nutcracker, but we did all the regular ballets, Swan Lake, Coppelia, Giselle, all that uh, stuff. And we performed at, a, at the Harding Theater in San Francisco. And so I just, I, I loved it. And that was, it was going to be my life. <laughs> you know, at that point, I was just so in love with it. But then something happened. You know, at the same time, I was all, you're also going to school and I'm also going taking uh, theater classes. I'm in the drama department. And so that's also happening at the same time. So there are two parallel uh, disciplines happening at the same time. There's the acting and then there's the dancing. And then at some point, I just you know, decide I don't want to do that anymore. I, I, I don't really want to do the ballet anymore. Uh, I, I change my... <laughs> and I focus mainly on, on theater and I'm doing more uh, musical work. I'm starting with the first musical. It was a, in, in high school, I believe it was. And it was a musical version of James Thurber's The Thirteen Clocks that was put together by the drama department, the music department, and the English department. So you were on, that was the first one. You were on stage singing, dancing, and acting at the same time. And I just, I just love that. So that, that sort of started me off. Yeah, it was, the, it was the ballet. And then when I went to the University of Washington uh, for my last three years of, of, of training up there for a BFA, um, I would continue with the ballet classes up there. I would take it in the morning, take a ballet classes in the morning before going to regular classes. Uh, regular acting classes to keep that up. And that was, I love that. You, you did a number of years at PCPA before University of Washington? Yes. Well, uh, University of Washington happened uh, sort of 
I was at BCBA from 70 to 76, and University of Washington happened the last three years. I, I, the, my last year at BCBA was 76. So uh, it kind of started in the middle of my tenure, if you will, at um, PCPA. So what got you down to PCPA? Like, how did you find your way into that program? And, and obviously, you enjoyed it and were successful there. Well, the, 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 I was in the drama department at City College of San Francisco, and a bunch of us heard about PCPA, and we decided to audition for Donovan Marley, who was the artistic director. I forget where we went to audition, um, but we all of us went down there. A bunch of us went down there to audition uh, for him. And, you know, we didn't know really how to do all that. We didn't have a song. We did. He said, do you have a song? I said, but no. He says, well, then sing happy birthday. <laughs> so we all sang happy birthday. And I got in, a friend, Richard Ryan, got in, Simon Levy, who was also, you know, in our school. Simon and I have been, you know, because he runs the fountain. Or he's one of the, uh, he's one of the directors of the fountain. Uh, he and I have known each other since college. And so uh, he was also down there, uh, got accepted. And uh, two other people got accepted um, uh, but they weren't actors, they were in the costume shop. And so they also got accepted to go down there and work. And that was in the summer of 70. And so that was my first year there at PCPA. And, and I just, what, 18, I think it was 18 when I started there. And, and you you're jump right into a rotating repertory company doing five plays, two musicals, and three plays in rotating rep. And you go, what better training is that? And at that point, you know, Donovan could get people to come to the company from all over the country. It was a great networking uh, environment. And, and you could also see different acting techniques. You see different people uh, and how they worked and all that. It was great training ground, wonderful training ground. Well, yeah, I was curious, is that where you feel like the technique you at least maybe started with was developed there? What you, what you took away that you still use from your PCBA Oh, my God, days? absolutely. No, absolutely. It, th- that was where I where I learned, where I gained a foundation, where I, I get a solid foundation, and that's totally due to Donovan Marley and the way he ran that company. Um, and he would, he would lay down the law. Everybody right before the company started, before there were any auditions or any of that kind of stuff, he would gather everybody in the theater, the whole company, and that meant not just the acting company, which was huge, but all the technicians, everyone that worked in the offices, everyone, the entire, the entire organization, the entire company for that summer would gather in the theater, and Donovan would get on stage, and he would give a you know sort of brief history of how this started. I think it started maybe in '65, '66, somewhere around there. And uh, and he laid down the law about how you were to behave in this community of Santa Maria, California, um, and what your responsibility was to the theater, to the to the profession. And if you didn't you know, follow kind of those rules and be protective of them and all that, you were, you were tossed out. That happened a number of times where people got in trouble and Donovan had to sort of bail them out, but then they were dropped. They were, you know, said, go home because they're not the kind of people that, because you have to be very, very careful. He was, he was nurturing that audience. He was educating that, that audience of, of farmers. They're mm-hmm. basically beet farmers. They're farmers and they come to the theater. They're very, very supportive. Um, but you had to be careful what you, the kind of plays you put on. You had to uh, uh, do and slowly, slowly, slowly um, educate them and get them excited about the theater, so they'll continue to come and continue to support. And so he had to be very, very careful. But the, the but how you work in the theater and the discipline of working and the ethics of it was all uh, it started there really for me there. I'll jump ahead in just a little bit, but I mean, it does sound like a great training ground for someone who wants to end up on Broadway doing musical theater eight shows a week. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was when I did Richard the Third earlier this year. I mean, it was such a an obstacle just to overcome the the physical demands and the emotional demands, and 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 that was the thing that that struck me is I cannot imagine what it would be like to do a, a play like that eight times a week. I mean, that to me yeah. is what a professional can do. It just it's just a whole other level of uh, uh, demands, I guess. Yes, and the, and no school, no training program. You got to understand, PCBA was rotating reps. You, you you did not show, you did not do eight consecutive shows a week. You may have uh, of the same show a week. You may sure. work eight shows a week, but there'll be different plays, and there'll be different responsibilities. You you could have a smaller role in one play and a larger role in another one, uh, and the most you could do is three. Just that's the schedule would only uh, could only accommodate you doing three plays. You could not do four. So you. If you, and, and you wanted to be cast in three. You wanted to be working all the time. And then, you know, Donovan, uh, then that, that organization acquired uh, and built a second theater in Solvang, uh, an outdoor theater, same dimensions, so all the sets and everything else could travel. And then they uh, scheduled the performances in both those theaters. And you travel back and forth. It took about 40 minutes uh, by bus. They'd bus you down. You'd go and do the show and bus you back home again. It was it was great. It was really great. And then, you know, it, after the first year, Donovan asked, there was another man, because the first two musicals, uh, I think, were La Mancha and Carousel. And there was a, a, a wonderful performer named Jim Cordy, who now runs, I believe, the Paramount Theater in Chicago. It's outside of Chicago. And he's now the artistic director there. Jim Cordy, a uh, wonderful dancer and performer. I learned so much from him. Uh, Donovan asked him to come back to choreograph the musicals and asked him who he wanted to assist, and he said me. So the next season, uh, we came down and we choreographed the musicals. And that happened consistently until uh, until uh, Jim stopped coming down and I was there, and then Donovan asked me to choreograph the musicals um, until, you know, 76. And but also choreographed, in that year, I also choreographed the dances in the Shakespeare's and a new musical called The Utter Glory of Morrissey Hall by Clark Gessner, who wrote uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And were those offers to choreograph based on your proficiency as a dancer? Well, because we had choreographed the musicals before, and they were, you know, fairly su- successful, I would imagine. They w- did all right, in- according to Donovan. So then when Jim, because Jim went to ACT, then Donovan asked me if I would do it, and I said, sure. Got it. So so what was it that you, was it something you felt was lacking, and that was why you ended up at University of Washington, or were you missing in your training? While I was... Um, there, I didn't want to. I wanted to stay on this coast. Um, I looked at other schools. I didn't want to go to anyone on the east, anywhere on the east coast or too far away from family. My family was in San Francisco. My mother and father. And so the University of Washington, which had a really good rep at that time, really really good rep, seemed like the logical choice. I didn't want to go to Los Angeles. I didn't want to you know do any of that. I wanted to stay, uh, but I still felt like I, I needed a little more. I needed more training, and so. I auditioned for them, got in, and it was a three-year program. And so I'd go up there for the school year, and I'd do that. And I got to do so many. The first year, you don't work that. You don't work. You don't do very many plays. You have to take, do classes, and you work the shows of the second and third year. And then the second year, you do more plays. And the third year, you're practically working all the time. But I felt that was what I needed to to do before actually going out into you know the real world and start working and needed some more training and I and I was very lucky I got I got cast very well up there in the plays and very many challenging roles and 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 those are the ones you need to grow so my, my time up there at the University of Washington was great I, I I I just loved it I loved being up there and and again you feel like there are a lot of things that you still use from that time at at UW 
Yeah, I guess there are. I, 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 I'd be hard-pressed to try to itemize <laughs> you know, what, they, sure. what they were. Each teacher brings different things um, to it. it. It's the entire experience that, that you take with you. It's the entire experience of, of, uh, of working in the theater and doing plays and, and working with different directors. All that experience you take with you when you finally when you finally leave and go. And so um, very, very beneficial for me to go up there. And then the very next year, I mean, after I graduated in 76, and then, you know, Dawn and I met in 76 at the Actors Theater, and, and I moved in with her in 77, and then I got a call from Duncan Ross, who was the artistic director of Seattle Rep, but, but ran the program that I was in in my first year when I was there. He left after the first year because he was finishing out his tenure there. Um, and and just continued to run Seattle Rep. But he called me and said, you want to do Benedict and Much Ado? And I said, sure. <laughs> so a, yeah, it's a great phone call. I, I came right it. back to Seattle <laughs> and did Benedict and Much Ado. Um, well, how did you, I mean, I know you met Don, at, at, as you said, at the Actors Theater, but how did you end up there? Um, was that just from regional auditions or did you know someone? Yeah, at that time they had the TCG auditions. Okay. Theater Communications Group auditions. And, and you had to go to where they would meet uh, but but you first had to prepare auditions and and there'd be representatives that co- would come out to all the schools and you would audition for these uh, the TCG representatives and then they would choose who could go only two people could go from each school and uh, they did that so they came to the University of Washington we all auditioned I was the only one that got chosen to go so I went to TCGs in Chicago that's the furthest east I've ever gone because I was raised in San Francisco. So I go, I fly to Chicago by myself. I go there. I go to the Lincoln Hotel, which is not far from the building that had the auditions in there. And you do your three, three minute piece, a classical and a, uh, and a contemporary piece for all the artistic directors of all the regional theaters in the country. They're all in the audience. And of course, John Jory was in the audience and you hope to get some callbacks. And then in the afternoon, uh, there are callbacks. And hopefully you get chosen. Well, I was very lucky. I got a lot of callbacks. And uh, I met a lot of people, and one of them was John. And um, I got a bunch of offers, and, and one of them was going to the Actors Theater of Louisville, and that was the, the best offer uh, to go there, to be there for the entire season and, and near the end of, the, of, the time, the, uh, the, of my time there, I, I'd be doing... Uh, Nick and Virginia Woolf and Peter and Diary and Frank, but I'd also be uh, in you know the in Christmas Carol and a bunch of other plays there, and of course you know that's where it all started with Dawn and myself. So Dawn, that's who we met. Thank God. Had I made any other, <laughs> I keep thinking about this. Had I made any other choice, gone to any of the other places, I never would have met Dawn. My life would have been totally different. Yeah. What the hell? It would have been a disaster, <laughs> <laughs> a total disaster. I keep thinking about that, and it scares me to death. Yeah, no, it, it is interesting those doors that open. Yeah. In addition to the great person that Don is, I, I'm curious, like, what has being married to an actress brought to your life? Like, what do you love about being married to another actor? Well, it's, you know, we all know the business. You know what rehearsals are like. You know the time constraints. You know the, uh, the commitments. You know the out-of-town stuff. And you're, you're willing to, um, to accept all that. That's, that's part of your world. That's part of your life. Um, if you're not part of the theater world, I, I can only imagine, I don't know. I know that it works for, for a lot of people, um, but for some people it might not. And uh, certainly there's a, there's a difference if you have a 
family and if you have children and all that. But it just it just makes it easier, I think, because we know because we just we know what the business is, we know what the what the rules are. And and you and John have also had the um, the pleasure of working together on a number of occasions, a number of sure. different places, different theaters, and and I'm sure that's kind of a unique opportunity for couples is to be able to work together in such a creative, collaborative way. Um, yeah. And has your process as a couple? Uh, also developed over the years in terms of how you work together and, and that kind of shorthand? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I love working with, with Dawn, uh, and and I think she <laughs> loves working with me. Um, I, I just, you know, want to be in the environment with her together. The more time, the more we can work together, the better I think it is. And because you get to go to rehearsals together, you have the performance together, you, you're, you're, have, you're sharing the experience together. Mm-hmm. I, I, just, I just think that's... I just love doing that, and the, the the more often we can do it, the more often we have the opportunity to do it, the better it is, I think. Well, what I'm hearing, though, is it sounds like you must have been a pretty good auditioner, and I'm curious, like, was that as a result of your mindset? I mean, like, how did you see auditions? Uh, I mean, I'm sure I know luck is part of it, but, uh, you know, preparation is another part, so yeah. how, how did you go into those? Well, in our third year at the University of Washington, because what happened was Duncan Ross uh, is stepped down as being artistic director and continued to run a Seattle rep. And then in the second year, there really wasn't any head of the BFA program. Um, the head of the drama department, which is different and separate, sort of stepped in a little bit and, and, and oversaw things. But the teachers themselves made up the schedule for that second year. Well, I guess while they were looking for someone to take over for Duncan Ross. In the third year, they hired Robert Hobbs from Ohio University. He came in, and he is, in my opinion, he's brilliant. He just was a brilliant teacher. I, I adored him. He challenged us in our, in our third year. He challenged us in ways that had never been challenged in our, the two years we were there. He made us, I saw work coming out of my colleagues my classmates that I had never seen in the two years <laughs> prior. I mean, it was he was just stunning. Anyway, what he he knew about the TCG auditions, he knew about all this stuff, and he knew how to prepare you for them. Mm. And so we had audition classes specifically for the TCGs. Oh wow! And he he um, you know made those classes and made those mock audition sessions so horrible on purpose, <laughs> you know, made them worse than they would, than, than any audition would ever, ever, ever be. But he just made it that way. Uh, uh, and I thought it was great, but he also said something. He said, it, you have to, you have to have something, you have to have something prepared from everything you've listed on your resume. Hmm. And we said, what? He says, no, you have to have something, everything prepared, something prepared from everything you've listed on your resume. So if you have 20 things, 20 plays listed, you have to have 20 things prepared because they're going to ask you. Some of them may ask you. And we thought it was that they're not going to do that. But we did. And I did. I had something prepared from everything that I listed so that when I got to the callbacks in Chicago, son of a bitch, if they didn't ask me. <laughs> if one said they would say, "Oh, you've done that play. Can you do anything? Can you can you do something from that?" I said, "Yes." And then, "Oh, that's great. Can you do something from that?" Yeah. <laughs> and they go down the list. You only had five minutes with them, but but or, or ten minutes, whatever it was. And but but he and I, and as soon as it started, I said, "You son of a bitch, Bob Hobbs," because mm-hmm. he was absolutely right, and he 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 set it up that way, and and um, 
and I, 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 I had it prepared. So for that particular audition, um, I knew what was uh, potentially expected, and I was prepared for it. Um, but auditions are, you know, everyone approaches them differently. Um, and some people really hate them. I don't particularly hate them. Um, I've gotten better at uh, television and film auditions. In fact, there was one, one time I went to an audition, and I don't know what I did. It was different. And the casting director said, well, you finally learned how to audition for film. <laughs> mm. And, and it's not that I did anything different. It was trial and error. I never had any classes. I never took any class. I know there are classes now that where you can go and do all that. Sure. But I never, I never, Dawn and I just sort of, you had to try to figure it out. You had to learn on your own. You had to watch and, 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 you know, trial and error in each audition. Try, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. Maybe I'll come in with a bit more costume. Maybe I'll come in a bit more. You know, you try different things, and then you realize you figure out what you don't need, what you don't have to do. You just have to come in and be as prepared. And by that, I mean you have to really you have, to have your lines memorized if you can um, and go in there and try to give them as I, as what I call just a little piece of theater. And by that, I mean... You make them focus on you for the, that, that time that you're in there. You're only there for a few minutes. You're only there for three minutes, four, five minutes at the most, whatever it is. But make them focus on you. Just focus on you and not look at their notes, not eat their sandwich, not you know, take a sip of coffee, but completely focus on you. Make them do that. And you can make them do that by keeping your eyes off the page and on the reader. Your, your first on-screen credit was uh, in Brubaker, right, with Robert yeah. Redford? Yeah. Was that a nerve-wracking experience just to audition for and then film the scenes? Or? I, I don't remember it being a nerve-wracking audition. Bob Rafelson at that time was the director. He got fired of it. But uh, Bob, I auditioned for Bob Rafelson. He was the original director of that film. And it was in New York. And I, apparently I looked young enough because the, the doctor has to be, uh, you know, look very like he's 12. Sure. Like I, if, you look at the, <laughs> if you look at the clip now, I look like I'm 12. And that's exactly what they wanted. So anyway... I don't remember being nervous. I, I probably was. <laughs> I don't remember. I remember him, him being very nice. Redford. Um, or the yeah, director. Uh, okay. or no, uh, uh, Rob Raverson. Redford was very, very nice. So, you know, we, we were in Ohio. Dawn came, Dawn came with me. I, I only worked four days. We were there four weeks. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there was a whole section where, um, where they said, you're not called for a whole week. And so Dawn and I just got in the car and, and, and <laughs> went off and toured Ohio, you know. Oh, it was terrific. A lot of it was shot. Everything was shot in a what used to be a prison, and part of it was still a kind of prison. I mean, they still had all the all the cells and things, but another part of it was kind of a business. So it was offices and things like that. But it was way out of the, about forty minutes, forty five minutes. Oh yeah, many of the, many of the extras were former prisoners there. Oh wow! <laughs> and a lot of the actors chose not to stay at the hotel, but stay in a cell <laughs> in the in the prison i said no i'm not going to go that i'm not going to do any of that plus, plus i'm not playing a prisoner i'm playing a doctor but i but watching redford i mean first of all i mean he's just so freaking gorgeous and so you come on the set and he'd be in the morning he'd just be all kind of disheveled he's still so he's just such a such a a, a, a a movie star you know what i mean sure such a great movie star and he was really really nice to me um uh, and he was nice to everybody. I mean, as much as he could be, there's a, you know, there were so many extras on it and they all wanted to take pictures and get autographs and all that. And you have, and he, it, it I, I, you kind of tell that if, 
if he could, he would spend time with so many more people because he just wanted to be social. But you can't because you because you'd be mobbed. You know, you would just and all your time would be taken up with pictures and taking signing autographs and and all that, and you can't do that. And so you have to have this kind of wall up. Right, and it's so easy to. Um... I guess, kind of flitter your energy away because, you know, film it takes a tremendous amount of concentration and energy. And yeah. if you're just socializing all the time, then it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So um, there, there's there's so much we could cover. Um, but I, I want to uh, ask you about um, when you when you got Oklahoma. Um, well, well, I mean, I guess quickly, how, how did that uh, come about? About Was that just uh, did somebody ask you to come audition? I'm now living in. And you and you auditioned for Agnes DeMille and Bill Hammerstein, and I believe you know Richard Rogers was still alive, still part of it, and so you had to audition for these people, uh, and that could be a bit daunting. Um, Richard Rogers being so much a part of the rehearsal because rehearsals right here in L.A. because it was a nine-month tour starting here at the Pantages. So I don't remember him. I don't think he ever came out here because of his health. However, Agnes DeMille was still very much a part of the production. She was here in a uh, Jemsey Delaps who, who was, uh, in the original production, um, and has mounted a number of productions of Oklahoma. Uh, she put all the dances together and then Agnes would come out and adjust them. And then Agnes periodically throughout the tour would come and meet us and see the production and give us notes in the lobby. Um, it was, it, and then when we got to New York, it wasn't supposed to go to New York. It was supposed to only be a nine month tour. And then when we got to Washington, Everybody looked around and said, man, this is a really good production. We should bring this in. Then Zev Buffman, um, uh, one of the producers, decided to bring it in. But Agnes said, yeah, you bring it in, but you can't bring it in with these sets and costumes because they were really tacky. Mm. I mean, they were good enough, I guess, for them for the road, but they were kind of tacky. So all new sets and costumes were built for New York, for Broadway. And then we played the palace. And then we had had one conductor on the road, and then when we got into town, Jay Blackton was our conductor, and Jay Blackton was the original conductor. Hmm. And so you're standing on the stage of the palace. This is my first Broadway show, technically my second, but the first, but it's actually my first actual Broadway show that actually went to Broadway. And you're at the palace. You're standing on the palace stage. You look down at the pit, and the face looking back at you is the exact same face the original company saw. Wow. And you go, holy moly, <laughs> I'm in heaven. This is heaven. And we did it nine months at the palace. And I know, you know, I mean, I know the show was a great success. And what I'm curious about is, you know, so this is your first, you know, technically your first big Broadway show. You get a you get a Tony nomination, you get a Drama Dex nomination and a Theater World Award. And how did that impact your mindset? Um, I mean, a lot of people can kind of go either way with those things. Um, and then how did it impact your career from that point forward? I don't know how much it impacted my career uh, all I know is that at the time, also my agent, who um, her, Susan Smith, uh, God bless her soul, um, she had an office in in New York at that time. Uh, good friends with so many of the producers, major producers in New York, including the Schuberts, uh, Bernie Jacobs, and Jerry Schoenfeld. In particular, Bernie Jacobs. And so, I got a lot of good reviews, and I got those nominations and that award, and that I guess that would help get me in the room. Mm-hmm. and get me other auditions and things like that, that probably helped a little bit because um, your name is out there and, and and the other people who are casting shows know, know who you are. They've seen your work. And so and so um, that that helped. But I also, I know that my agent was able to, you know, get me in the room in some of these things. So that was, 
that was a a big big help to get some of the other shows that that I got. And and did it um did it change your sense of confidence about your own work or did it matter to you the uh I mean I know it mattered uh, on a certain maybe professional level but just on a personal level did it did it really change anything in terms of how you approached acting or your career? No, it didn't really. It, it was just the way things were going. I I I felt very fortunate. I felt very lucky that I was you know, getting these these jobs and these other Broadway shows. I, I felt very, very, very fortunate, but that was just what was happening. No, you just went with it, and you said, and, and you're living your life. I mean, Dawn and I are living a life in New York, and we're, you know, she's working, I'm working, and so it, it was, this is the way it was supposed to be. <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? As far as we were concerned, this is what was what was going to happen. Um, and so you just you just went with it. Well, and you, and you mentioned earlier, you know, having this dream uh, when you were young about doing ballet and, and, and you saw West Side Story, you know, and that was did you uh-huh. but now moving ahead to when you were doing Oklahoma and, and you're, you're, you're at this point in your career. Did you have a dream or aspiration about what you wanted out of your career? Well, all I all I know in terms of what I wanted to do is that I wanted to be a, a versatile actor. I wanted to be not just someone who does Will Parker in Oklahoma. Sure. I wanted to, I wanted to do many things, and so uh, I'd go back and forth between plays and musicals and plays and musicals and plays and musicals. And that, for a dancer, is not the best thing in the world because to be a really good dancer, you've got to do it all the time, and you've got to go to classes and you've got to do all that to to improve your technique. And I did not do that, and so I would you know you do a musical here and a musical there, then you could do a play or two, and then another musical will come up and you're kind of out of shape and you have to get back into shape to do that musical. And then you do that musical and you're pretty good shape and you know to play, <laughs> you know? And so you, I, and that's kind of the way my, my career would go. And I, I was happy with that. I didn't want to be just a musical comedy guy. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that, that I had done all these plays in school. I did all these uh, uh, shows at, you know, PCPA. I did other plays as well. And so I, I, uh, I said no. I, there's other stuff out there I want to do, and 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 I tried to gear my career, you know, to that. Well, as far as I know you, and as both an actor and as a friend, and even it's come up a little bit on this call. There's there's such a joviality, I guess I would, or, or there's just a lot of humor in what you do. And, um, even when I see clips of different things, you know, um, of your work or, or on stage, but then there's also this kind of fieriness that I know you have available too. Like there's a lot of, you know, there, there can be that part of you too. And I'm, and I'm curious, did that, that, that humor, it's almost like, uh, I think I told you one time, I would love to see you play McKeith. Because I feel like you have that. um, Well, I don't think Harry is sinister, but I know you have that. There's that unpredictability about you, um, which is which is very exciting. Yeah, I played a lot of villains. Um, And I I seem to take to it. (laughs) And and I mean, was that 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 kind of, you know, infusing your work with your your own humor, your own sense of humor and and also that unpredictability? Was that something you consciously developed or was just always part of your work? I think it's part of my work. It's just you look at each project and you say, what's required? Mm -hmm. And you 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 do that. Um, I, I, I do like the diversity. I do like to do different things so when a part comes along that's so opposite from the you know jovial you know nice guy 
uh, that's just heaven to play that kind of guy. I played a number of very, bad, very bad guys. Well, well, yeah. Picking out one, the 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 mayor, of course, a lot of people would know you from on on Buffy. Yeah, but there, but 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 uh, I I did. There was a play at the Mark Taper Forum called Ghetto. Right. Joshua yeah. Sobel, and I played uh, a character. He's an SS officer in charge of the ghetto. His name was Hans Kittle. He really existed. So did this story. Apparently, is is based on a true story. And he's a basically, he's a, you know, SS officer, uh, and and we all know what that is. And he, you know, kills a lot of people. And in fact, he kills these people in the ghetto. Um, but it's it's his, the evil that's inside him, which was inside that whole period, in Germany, and all those uh, all the people that were part of that that regime. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, there was evil on this planet there in Germany. But you don't play the bad guy. He never thought of himself as a bad guy. He thought of himself as an artist. Hmm. He played the saxophone. You know, he thought he he felt he was uh, like these people he was in charge of. Many of them were performers in the ghetto, and they would perform. But he felt he was a performer, and so he felt he was one of them. And 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 so you don't you, you don't think you're evil. You think you're kind of a nice guy doing the right thing for your country or for whatever it is. And so you, you have to think about that. And the, your, the audience's perception of the actions is what makes him, you know, the bad guy. Sure. And also he's wearing an SS uniform. But, right. <laughs> you know, but still, he, he didn't think of himself that way. And you have, to, you have to try to think, you know, go that way out of it. You can't play. Uh, whereas, in, you know, Richard, Richard is very comfortable in his villainy. Right. Um, whereas I don't think Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are. Sure. Uh, I don't think, you know, King John is. I don't think, but Richard, I think he's very comfortable until he, he decides to lose control of everything um, as people leave him. And so that's different. And that's something that he shares with the audience, that the audience can enjoy until they realize what they're enjoying. But he's, you know, he's, he's pretty comfortable because he has a very clear agenda. He knows where he wants to go, and um, he's doing everything he can to make it happen. So, and, that's, that, uh, and that can be fun to watch on stage. And when you played the mayor, did you have a lot of input in terms of that character, in terms of, you know, how he came across, or, or were you able to kind of develop that collaboratively? With I just, I, I just started playing it, and Joss was very clear about how uh, he wanted him played, that you know, don't be, do not be sinister in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, don't twirl your mustache, you know, saying sure. you must pay the rent, you must pay the rent. And if ever, if it ever started to go there, he'd say, just, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't do that. Just throw it away, throw it away, just throw it away. Um, just be easier with it. Just be easier with it. Because the mayor was also very clear about his trajectory. I mean, he knew that he was a, on his way to being a demon. He certainly knew that because mm-hmm. that was what, that was his plan. So he's aware of all that, but he, but, but he's in control, and so he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to do very much, you know, because he he knows where he's going. He's in control. He's got people working for him. It's all going to happen the way he wants it, until you know. He then he, he freaks out when it has to do with faith. You know, when faith is in jeopardy, because faith, his relationship with faith, uh, is something I don't think he expected, and faith didn't expect. That mm-hmm. was sort of new, and 
he he did care for her the way he cared for a daughter, the daughter that he couldn't have with his wife. And so when she becomes in jeopardy, that's when he starts to lose a little bit of control. And then, of course, he's vanquished. But you don't, you know, when you when you when you have the power. Uh, I, I was someone once asked in class to Duncan Ross. Someone asked, "How do you how do you play a king? How do you play the what What do you do? What do you do to play a king?" He said, "You don't do anything. Everyone else does something. You don't have to do anything. You're the king. <laughs> hmm. Everyone else does something. They're the ones who bow. They're the ones who do things. You don't have to do anything. You have all the power, and that's a great." lesson in itself. So anyone who has power uh, and, and knows it and is aware of it and knows how to use it, you don't have to do very much. You don't have to yell. You don't have to scream. You don't have to do any of that. You just, you, you have the power. And that's even more frightening. Sure. Oh, absolutely. The, the villain, quote unquote, that, that whispers that, uh, yes. you know, it's, it's a lot more, it's a lot more sinister. It's a lot more uh, unnerving of, yes. because you don't know what they're going to do next. That's right. That's right. You also had, I think, a role or a, or a position or a job that many people, many actors aspire to do, which is to be a series regular on a major show. And what I'm curious about is, what would you want to share about series regular work? I mean, what did you most take away from that experience? Well, I loved the, the, the company itself. In this particular situation, the, the actors themselves, and Judd Hirsch was the, was the lead of this series. It was mm-hmm. Dear John. And Judd was the lead of this series, but all of us really, really enjoyed each other and really liked working with each other. And Judd was truly incredible. I I don't know what it's like, and we're still actually very good friends, all of us. <laughs> and we still occasionally get a chance to to hang out together and have a dinner or something. You know, Marco uh, Panette, who was one of the producers on the show, and he's now uh, one of the producers and writers on Mom, but he's done a bunch of things. But anyway, he he occasionally has us all over for dinner, and it's so it's just it's just great it's just great to be together. The cast was wonderful. I don't know what it's like to have a to to be a regular on an hour show. The hours are different, of course. You're there much uh, longer. Uh, it was the first time that we actually had a sort of a nine to five job. I've never had that before. Mm-hmm. And so when we started rehearsals, started working on the show. <laughs> we would just laugh because we'd say, "I come home from the from work and say, hey, honey, I'm home.' What, that never happens, right? You know that nine to five, you're, you you don't get up at four in the morning to go to the set. Your rehearsal start at nine or ten or whatever it is, and you finish. Depending on how the script is, you can finish. You know, three or four, five or six, maybe at the latest. Later on in the week, as you get to run throughs for the producers and stuff like that, maybe a little later. And then there's shoot night, and at that particular time with their John. I think it was Cheers and Empty Nest. I think were, they were also shooting in the, on the same lot. And Friday night was all of our shoot nights. And we would finish the shoot and then go to um, the Columbia Bar and Grill, which was right on um, Sunset and Gower. We'd all go there. And it was like, it was like New York because you would, <laughs> after a performance, and you all gather at Joe Allen's or you all gather at Barrymore's or, or Charlie's or whatever. And and that was just a wonderful, wonderful experience to to be with all these other actors. I, I really enjoyed the experience. You know, the problem was was certain directors that we got that didn't really know um, at times didn't really know what they were doing, and sometimes you had to do reshoots because they didn't get the right coverage and stuff like that. And so, but that's par for the course. 
and that was in only in the first year. The second year, Hal Cooper and Rod Parker, they were the main producers, and Hal would you know direct all the episodes. And he was he he's been he's done so many of those kinds of sitcoms. Uh, Jimmy Burroughs directed the first directed the pilot, and I think maybe the first few episodes. Maybe I, I don't remember <laughs> quite frankly. Um, but he, and Jimmy Burroughs, of course, is is brilliant. He's just a, a brilliant director. But I, I, I enjoyed it, and 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 of course, I mean, here's the difference. I did, I did nine months on the road, nine months in town of Oklahoma, and and you're making you know pretty good money on the road. I mean, at that time for us, mm-hmm. you're making pretty good money, and so you, nine months on the road, nine months in town. At the end of which, Don and I could buy a wing chair. <laughs> that was. <laughs> that was it. I said, "What the hell? Where did all the money go?" Where, you know, because we're frugal. We're not. We're conservative with our money. We don't go crazy with it. We don't spend, spend, spend. You know, and do all that. We're 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 pretty good. We're pretty smart uh, about all that. Sure. And and so and you and you have to be because it's so precarious. You know, you make money and then you don't. You make money and then you don't. So you have to be smart with your money. Um, and then this this series happened, and we were able to buy a house and furnish it. And you go, wow, <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's, that's a huge, huge difference. But, uh, you know, the half-hour stuff is different than the, the, than the hour shows. Uh, I've had some recurring on, on our shows, and, and uh, I like the experience. I didn't mind, um, you know, getting up, but I'm not there every single day like some of the regulars are. And I imagine that can be exhausting and taxing and because you have all those all those uh, you know, the regulars have all those lines to learn every single day and they have those scenes and they have that stuff and then there are rewrites and you have to you know, put all this stuff in your head and it gets that can get i can only imagine that can get really really taxing and hard and and exhausting sure well i mean it, it sounds uh and i never thought of it that way but it uh, this way that it does sound like if you're a series, at least on these half-hour shows, maybe at that time, and I'm sure there are still some like this, but it really creates that community like uh, a play does, like theater does. Um, yeah. and, and that sounds like a, a really extraordinary experience of you. You know, you get the right group of actors who are also looking for that, um, sure. that it can be a really amazing um, just kind of family, second family or third family, something like that. Yeah, it's really great, and especially if if, if you can maintain that relationship you know, as friends throughout, and 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 we have, and um, you know, we see each other not as often as we'd like, actually, but we do get to see each other. So that that's good. I haven't seen Judd in a while. He almost he he almost he was he was going to come and see Cat, but he couldn't make it, and that would have been so wonderful because he's a real theater guy. Mm. You know, he really he, that's the way he works. He he loves the theater, but that's the way he works. He loves to rehearse, and so we would rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse those scenes until they were right, and. um and I, I appreciate that. I love that. You know, Harry, in a career of uh, extraordinary things that you've done, um, one of the things I'm most curious about is how in the world you were able to do so many performances of Crazy for You from like a concentration and, and focus and enthusiasm standpoint. I mean, how, how long did you play Bobby Child? I did Bobby Child for three years. Wow. And uh, I did... I think the number is 555 consecutive performances from the very first one in Washington, from the very first performance in Washington through that run and then into over a year in New York. I did 555 consecutive before I took my first break, and even that was to go work. 
(laughs) (laughs) But nothing, no school, nothing, nothing prepares you for a long run, but a long run. Mm. So you don't know, actors generally don't know how they're going to respond to doing it for month after month after month after month. You, You don't know until you get into it. And of course, it depends on the piece. And I, I, I loved this piece. I loved uh, doing Crazy for You. It was a glorious role. And the cast stayed together pretty much intact for, for uh, you know, well over a year, uh, the original company, and uh, until the first person started to break off, I think, in, the, in someone, someone in the ensemble, uh, not, the, not the principal, someone in the ensemble started to, you know, said, I'm going to go do this show. I'm gonna go. So they started to break off and go and do other things, but they, we all stayed together, and that help maintain the quality of the production. And so the, someone coming at the beginning of the, of the run and then a year later would see the exact same show. And so uh, I, that also uh, uh, helped because everyone else loved doing the show as well. And they were disciplined enough and, and uh, to maintain what Mike and Stro, Mike Ockman and Susan Stroman um, wanted for the piece. And, and it, it was just, we just love doing it. And, and I mean, it can be difficult <laughs> if you don't love it. If you don't, I, I mean, I did cats for 14 months um, and I was ready to leave um, when the 14 months was up. I was ready to go. Mm-hmm. I, I figured I had done, I mean, cats is what it is. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a really fun show uh, to do, but it, it's, it's, it's basically a children's uh, story. Sure. And, and I enjoyed doing it, but, uh, and I and I enjoyed working with uh, uh, the, the the company, and certainly I made some really good friends um, in it. But I was ready to go by the end of fourteen months, you know. And I was not particularly ready to go after fourteen months of of crazy for you. I was ready to go, you know, keep keep going as long as my body would go. And three years was about right. And I asked if I could finish. Uh, on New Year's Eve of 94, I believe it was. I wanted to finish with fireworks and, and all that <laughs> stuff. And they, and they, they uh, agreed to that. So it was New Year's Eve of 94, the final thing. And, and then there were fireworks and, you know, in, in the, in the park and the ball dropping and all that celebration and all that. It was a great way to go out. Just a great way to go out. And did you find that you kept discovering new things about the play, even a year, two years in, about your character, about the songs? Well, you, you sort of you sort of do in the beginning, and 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 then you feel you pretty much mind what you can mine out of uh, out of the piece. It's it's not that complicated. The story is pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, your your objective is to stay healthy and to be smart in terms of taking care of your body. And so you really got to focus on that. And I mean, all of us, because we, everybody had to kiss everybody else in the show. There was just, you know, one person kisses that person, that person kisses someone else, that person kisses someone else, that person kisses someone else. And so, of course, you know, a cold could travel. And so all of us just backstage uh, would gargle with Listerine all the time. <laughs> we just have Listerine backstage and just gargle, gargle, but just take care of ourselves. And, 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 uh, uh, you really have just have to focus and, and, and everybody did, everybody was, was good. You know, now I, I wanted to spam a lot. So many of the people just decided to take, you know, they have a personal day 
off. They just go and have a personal day. I don't remember anyone having a personal day in Crazy for You or some of the other Broadway shows that I did. You know, you 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 leave because of uh, illness. You know, you 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 don't show up because of really serious illness or a personal uh, tragedy of some kind. Someone in your family is very sick, or someone has you know a parent has has died, and you have to go away, or, or whatever it is. But you don't just leave because oh, I just don't feel like coming in today. You know, that kind of thing. You do, you don't you just you don't do that. You go to the show. That's your job. And so uh, I was kind of surprised when, I, when, when that kind of behavior, and that's, that's apparently happening on Broadway now. People are just sort of, uh, they're not that committed to coming to the show every single night. They have other things in their mind, other things they want to do. Not, not everybody, of course. I, I don't know about some of the, some of the leads. And if you're, if you're a star, that, if you're the star of the show, my God, the kind of pressure to be there every night and not get sick and all that because you, many people are buying the ticket because of you. Let's say Bette Midler in Hello, Dolly. Sure. You know, or any star that comes in, you know, Denzel, if he's in there doing, doing a Shakespeare or whatever it is, or doing a, an August Wilson or whatever it is, you know, the pressure on him to be there every single night, the pressure on her to be there every single night because people are buying the tickets to see them. You go, oh, my God. <laughs> That's just holy moly. Mm. But you just, you, for a long run, you have to, if you're doing a play, yeah, you, you can discover all kinds of things. When I did um, Sunday in the Park, I did that for four months. Um, I kept discovering things in the music, in particular, and the and the role is very complex as well. And so you you do you do depending on 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 how on the writing. But with Sondheim, I kept on discovering things in the music that I hadn't heard. You know, that week before, or two or three or four weeks before, all of a sudden I hear something, I go, wow, wow, <laughs> you know, and you appreciate his brilliance. But with that piece, I kept, you just keep working. So, uh, you know, you just keep working when it's, a, when it's a complicated piece, when there's a lot to it, when there's a lot to the story. You just keep imagining, keep working, keep thinking. You know, one of the the cool things about your career, Harry, is, I mean, in addition to working, you know, in theaters all around the country, you've worked in the big markets like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. And and I'm curious, what have you found to be the kind of differences among those theater towns? For me, uh, I think that I think in New York, they're, they, they don't they, they're not as aware of how provincial they are. They, it used to be, because it was really, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and some extent 50s, before the regional theater movement started, it was the only place to go. And it was the theater town. And so uh, that was, if you wanted to be in the theater, you wanted to be a star, you either went there or you came here into L.A. to be, a, be in the movies. But um, it was a theater town. Now it's not, as far as I'm concerned, it's not, it's still, there's Broadway and all that, but you find, you find great theater all over the place. And so it, I think at times it thinks a little bit too much of itself. Um, as far as, you know, Los Angeles is not a theater town. It's a film and TV town. However, there's, there's, there's a lot of theater here, obviously. Sure. And there are many wonderful actors here, and you have a lot of fabulous actors wanting to be t- television and film stars who are out here that you can, if you can get them, utilize to do theater. So it's potentially uh, equally as uh, 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 as exciting a theater town. 
as uh, anyplace else. It's just that that's not where the focus is. And you as an actor should know that when you come here. It's not, it's, it's all about television and film. That's why you're here. And, uh, but, but you can go out and find the theater and do theater uh, that, that, you, that you want to do, find the company that you work with. I mean, that's you know, how the MTS company started. But Chicago, that's for me, is, is where some really, really exciting work uh, is happening. Um, they have incredible companies there. The acting pool is, is just outstanding. When I'm, the three years when I went there, I'd, 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 as soon as you get there and you're in rehearsal, um, because I'd already be off book, they, I would use the after rehearsal, I'd go see as many plays as I could. All those three years, I saw a gazillion plays. But you go everywhere. You go all over the place. Not just the Goodman, not just you know in the Chicago Shakes, or but you go to, to to as many different kinds of theaters and and almost to a to a production. Uh, I, I rarely saw anything that you go, oh man, that was really a piece of crap. Yeah, it, it was all good, all wonderful, and you go, oh man, what's happening here in Chicago? That's different. That's extremely exciting. What's happening in Chicago? I think in terms of quality, certainly in Steppenwolf. I mean, thank God for Martha Lavi. Martha Lavi, uh, uh, God rest her soul, she's also passed away. But if she hadn't decided to encourage a lot of these women, uh, female directors there, and given them a venue and given them a play to direct, um, we, they probably would have happened anyway, maybe someplace else, but maybe not. But, they, but she was the one who encouraged all that. And as a result, they have women directors, you know, hanging off trees. Sure. Uh, out there, I mean, there are just they are, they are fabulous uh, uh, women that get a chance to direct these incredible plays, and and uh, it's just it's just very exciting out there. San Francisco has always been a disappointment to me. San Francisco should be a West Coast New York City in terms of theater, and it isn't. And, it, and as, as I'm concerned, it never was. It really only has ACT and maybe Berkeley Rep and maybe one other thing, and that's it. But it should have so many more theaters, and it doesn't. But it thinks it's a very, you know, big theater town. And that's always driven me nuts about it. There was a snobbishness about San Francisco, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. And I was raised there. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen, I mean, I was also influenced, if you talk about it being influenced, I was also incredibly influenced because this is where I, where I really, I saw the kind of work that I wanted to do, which is at ACT. My mother and father would take me to ACT, and I saw so many incredible plays. And, but, but you'd go back one night, and you'd see the actors doing one play, and you come back the next night, you see the same actors doing a different play, playing different roles. Hmm. And you go, oh, my God, this is exactly what I want to do. This is exactly what I want. It was ex- an extremely exciting theater company. And then when I moved to New York and I started to see, I guess this is why I think of New York as, as, as uh, being a bit provincial, is that when I got to New York and I saw some of the work there, I, I, I said, well, it's, you know, they were doing this at ACT. Or when the Royal Shakespeare Company or National would come in and do things and, and New York would go nuts over what they were doing. And you'd see the plays and I'd go, well, but ACT was doing this in the 60s. Mm-hmm. ACT was doing exactly this in the 60s. Uh, and why aren't you acknowledging that there's an American company that, that, that was also capable of doing what you now are touting as being brilliant from the RSC or the National? Sure. I mean, no doubt, they're wonderful companies, and they course, do yeah. incredible, incredible work, and I, just, I, I think they're just the bee's knees. But you've got to acknowledge the American companies and the American actors the, the exact same thing. You have to. You have to. <laughs> you know? Right. So, um, but they, but but ACT was was, and where I met so many of our, so many of 
people that, that are our friends now and that I work with now. And I saw them um, when I was a young, young guy, and you'd see Hamlet, or you'd see René Aubergine du Tartuffe, or Charlie's Aunt, or uh, you, I saw an incredible production of Richard by Randy Duke Kim. Those people that inspire you when you see that. But but now David Dukes, who was a member, original member of the Antigua's company, I saw him play, I think it was Hamlet, in a fabulous production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that ACT did. Uh, and then, of course, we started working together. And then, and, and, and interestingly enough, there was a production that, that the, our, the ballet company that I was in that we did uh, of Peter and the Wolf. And Peter and the Wolf, of course, you know, has a narrator. Mm-hmm. was David Dukes who played, who, who, who not played, but who was the narrator. When I reminded him of this, he, he said, oh my God, I remember that. And I said, yeah, I was a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, wow. But I mean, much later, when I, another connection to the, to the past and all that, I said, the rest of that story was so influential. When I was doing Oklahoma, Harvey Evans was my understudy. Harvey Evans is in the movie and was one, and probably was also in the Broadway company, but he's in the movie as one of the Jets. Hmm. And I go, holy, holy Christ. <laughs> this is great. This stuff is just great. Well, yeah. You, I mean, getting to work with these people that you admired as a, as a child is, uh, is pretty yeah. extraordinary. Oh, my God. It is, it, it is just, it, it, is, it is such a treat. It is just, it, and, but it just connects you. It connects you uh, to our world to our theater world in the most special, most wonderful way when you have a connection to the different generations and things. You know, I don't know if, um, if nervousness ever came up with you, but I, or with, you know, some of the people you, you talked about working with later, but I remember when we, when you and I did mother courage, uh, together mm-hmm. that, that I, I've often thought I'm kind of glad I didn't know how great everybody else was in the company because <laughs> I, I think I might've been terrified to do anything. Oh. Um, because it was just, I mean, you, you know, you're, as you start to learn about these people's, uh, histories and, and backgrounds and training, it's just like, you know, m- meanwhile, I'm just like, oh, that's Andy, the director, and there's Harry and there's Angie, you know, and you don't, yeah. you don't get uh, bogged down with who these people are, quote unquote, you just, you know, see them as your fellow actors. That's right. And, and that's the way it should be. I mean, you could admire them, you could admire their work, but that's the way it should be. We're all in the same boat. We're all doing a play. And we have to tell that story. So we're all really in the same boat. Doesn't in that particular experience, it doesn't matter what what your history is. We all we're all part of now this history. We're all part of the history of this particular production, and we're all equal as far as I'm concerned. And so uh, we did well in that one. Yeah, no, that was a that was a really a really fun, very unique production to be uh, involved in. I thought so too, and it was good for the company. Now I, I'm curious. Can can you? Talk a little bit. I, I, I know you've said in the past that it's very similar, but like, you know, when I, when I think of your work, Harry, and I think of like um, you doing the song Mrs. Worthington by Noel Coward, mm-hmm. or uh, I know you played King Lear and, you know, you have the, he has like the reason, not the need speech. You know, you've said that you work on these things very similarly. Yeah. What, what, what does that look like? I mean, can you take us a little bit into how you approach these things? Well, take Worthington, for example. Uh, you have to think of it as who's he, you think of it as a scene. You don't think of it as a song. I don't think of it as a song. I think of it as a scene. He, who is this guy talking to? Talking to this mother who wants the kid to be in this, who wants her daughter to be this. Thing. You 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 do that and you ask all these questions. And basically, what's happening is, you know, you you think well, he's going to say it's just not working out, but then she doesn't go away. 
She keeps staying and keeps mm-hmm. pushing, and that does what? Well, that, that could frustrate you until you find, because look at where he ends up. He ends up screaming. He's in a rage at the end of the number. Why? You have to ask those questions. Why is he in a rage? Because she's not going away. She does not accept no for an answer. She's still being there. She's still pushing. It's driving him fucking crazy. So that helps you make the choices about each verse. It makes you, where, where, that helps you create the build for it. Mm-hmm. That helps you. You have, to, you have to ask the same question that you do in Lear. Where does he, you know, I've always felt in Lear, I, you know, uh, I think it's a mistake to make him actually in the mad scene, quote, the quote mad scene, mm-hmm. but he is not mad at all. He's, he, you can't make him mad. You can't make it pathological. You can't make him have uh, an Alzheimer's or a dementia or any of that, because as soon as you do, he's off the hook, and he cannot be off the hook for his hubris and for his blindness mm-hmm. to who he, who he really loves him and, and to what he does at the beginning of the play. You, he, he has to pay for it, um, I think, as far as Shakespeare is concerned. So 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 what does that mean? Okay, so why is he behaving the way he's behaving? Well, you just you look at the timeline. You look he, when he leaves uh I believe it's Goneril's house first. He he wakes up early in the morning cuz he's going to go hunting. So he wakes up very early in the morning. He's eaten whatever he's eaten. He goes with his men, he goes out to hunt. He comes back and has that scene with her. He she throws him out. So he goes, "Okay, fuck you. I'm going to go to my other daughter." He goes to Reagan goes to her, she does the exact same thing. How much time does all this take? Mm-hmm. So you're, 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 now, you're now, by the time he gets to the Heath, uh, I mean, he has not, by the time he gets to, to all, he hasn't eaten or slept in how long? And he's mm-hmm. 80 years old. So we all know what it's like, how you feel if you don't get any sleep whatsoever, and you're hungry. You, 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 your mind starts to go a little bit. You go kind of nuts. You get very irritated. You get all these things happen to you physically when you have no sleep and no food. And so that's what leads, as far as I'm concerned, that's what leads me to, to him in the mad scene when he's, you know, he comes in and he does, because he knows exactly where he is. He is, he knows exactly what's going on. He recognized, I think he recognizes Gloucester right away. He knows exactly. He's blinded. Obviously they did it to him. He's gotten it all. He understands. He understands it all. It isn't until he is, he is um, found by his by his daughter, and 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 fed and rested and all that that he's back to himself again. But he's not mad. He can't be mad. You've got to really study and look at the and and imagine the circumstances of each scene. You do the same thing with a song. What do you, the song is is a is a monologue. Every song is a monologue. So what's happening in the monologue? What do you want? What do you want to do? What do you want to say? What's the objective? Why are you singing this? What's going on in your life? Ask all those questions. Ask all the same questions you would in a play, in a scene. You ask the same things in a song. And, and depending on the song, it's to different degrees. Some songs are silly. Some, some songs, if you're doing a Sondheim, you've got a lot of work to do. You know, uh, if you're, uh, but you can ask the same thing with an Irving Berlin song, same thing with a Rodgers and Hammerstein, same thing. You ask the same questions. It's just the exact, for me, it's just, it's just the exact same work. There's no difference. And, and don't, don't focus in a mute, in, in a song, don't focus on the sound of it. As far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, if you're a good singer, the sound is going to be there anyway. So there's the, you don't have to worry about the sound of it. Um, just think about the scene. Think about the acting of it, and that will help you. 
Well, Harry, uh, I mean, this has been such a great conversation. I know I could talk to you and ask you questions for another two or three hours. <laughs> this is this has been a lot of fun. I mean, there, there's so much we didn't cover, but uh, but that's the uh, that's the reality of doing uh, uh, conversations like this. You just can't get to everything. I know, I know. But but l- there, listen, there is one thing I do want to I, I do want to say to your listeners, who are, I I trust will be. Um, there'll be many actors that'll be listening to this, right? Mm-hmm. One of the most, in, ter- in terms of a working process, and some actors don't don't do this, and I guess that's that's all right. But 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 in terms of an acting process and how you will begin to work on a role, the thing that I do most right at the beginning, the the the, the but I mean, but you're, you're working on it as you're doing this. But think what I do right in the beginning is I, I try to get off that script immediately get all my lines in my head so that you go to the first rehearsal off book. If you have time, I'm not saying if someone calls you a few days uh, ahead and say, <laughs> says, uh, can you do this part? And you say, yes, that's different circumstances. But if you know at least a month in advance, uh, I've learned a whole place in that, in that time within, you know, that month before the first rehearsal. And it's, it's very possible, uh, to do that while you're learning those lines, you're also doing work. You're also looking at a scene and you're asking questions in your head and you're, you're, you're learning things about the play. You're learning things about the story as you're learning your lines, but you learn your lines. Uh, you get, just get them, get them done. Because if you can come to, if you can come to the rehearsal, first rehearsal off book and you don't have that book in your hand. And the first thing you're doing is you're looking somebody in the eye and you're playing the scene already in your very first, how far will you be by the time you get the tech? As opposed to the what's the what's the alternative? You come in, you don't know a word. You spend two or three weeks learning all those words and not really being able to play the scene yet fully because you you have the friggin' book in your hand. It isn't until you get maybe to the last week of rehearsal before techs, and then maybe after you open two or three weeks you know, into the run, if it's, a, I mean, if it's only a four week run by the second week, third week, you're starting to really cook and the scenes are really starting to be, to, to show something. And the only reason that is, is because you all know your words. And so if you can already in the first, in your first week, begin to experience what it's like in your fourth week, how far along would you already be by the time you actually get to your fourth week hmm. in terms of, in terms of, of of what you've discovered in the play. You've also discovered what you don't need. Mm-hmm. You've discovered the better choices. You've had time. You know, I've heard so many actors say in the run, saying, oh my God, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have made that choice. Well, you might have learned that if you'd already been off book and you already, you know, you could discover it. I know that I've been doing this for a very, very long time and it's always paid off. Always, because you 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 look, and it also helps the other actors. Uh, it, it 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 fuels them. It spurs them on. They go, oh my god, he's already off book. Well, and so they start getting off book, and the quicker everybody else is off book, the quicker you start playing those scenes. And it's also you're not you're not holding anyone back. You're not holding the other actors back. You're not holding the director back. Many times the director is just waiting for you. The director is sitting there waiting for you all to know your words. So that he can start his work, or she can start the work. So, in terms of a process, get off book as quick as you can if you have the time. Just get off book as quick as you can, preferably the entire play, first rehearsal. Certainly, if you're playing, uh, uh, certainly if you're playing, uh, uh, not playing a major role in the play, there's no reason why you can't. Sure. 
You know, if you're playing the lead in in a play and it's very and it's very uh, verbal, you know, you 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 work and work and work until you get it. But if you if you don't have that many words to learn, if you're playing second and third lead, there's no reason why you can't already be off book. There's just no reason why you can't be. You don't have that much to learn. Learn it and get in there and just work. It's amazing what you'll discover. This is great. Thank you so much, Harry. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're very, very welcome, Nathan. All right. You take care, Harry. All right, my friend. You take care, too. Hey, guys. It's Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments, and thank you very much for doing that. Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash podcast for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show at WA Journey on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to check out freemeditationcourse.com. Sign up right now to start making your life easier, calmer, and more enjoyable. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening.